All right, here we go. Picking up a almost dead tradition of spending a whole podcast episode talking about one movie, but I'm very glad to bring it back because I I was talking about the last episode. I'm very distracted and not having a ton of ideas of things I want to make lately. So let's focus on something somebody else made. Um, Today, we're going to talk about Tenet. You have to have seen it before you watch this or you will be frustrated and confused. And I've got two fantastic people here to talk about it. Um, First to my uh, uh, left, if you're watching, or wait, to my right, if you're watching the video, because you should be, this is on YouTube, is uh, Olaf, who has been here before, VXR, VFX artist, cinematographer, uh, all-round artist. Thanks for coming back, Olaf. Anytime. Always a pleasure to be here. And to my other side, <laughs> Simbrash. Uh, I'm glad I'm glad you're back too. super amazing photographer whose work you've got to be following right now because you've been like leveling up every week. Well, not that's not exactly it. You're just so like in the middle of what the world wants to see right now. It's crazy. Your photos from uh, Washington recently, everything in New York in the summer. Everybody should be following Simbrush. Hey, man. Thank you, man. How are you doing? Real good. But we're not talking about our stuff today. We're gonna talk about a movie. And um, I have I have some notes for myself to try to keep this slightly on course, because this is a complicated enough film that we're likely to wander off. But I thought it started off by like, what what are your guys's overall feelings about Nolan? Just to, to set us up of like going into it. What do you usually think when you're watching a Nolan film? I mean, I definitely enjoy his films and they often surprise me. Um, I know that when Dunkirk's trailer first dropped, I truly felt like if it didn't say Nolan at the end, it was a pretty underwhelming looking film. I wasn't very intrigued or impressed or ready to go see it. And then when I saw it, I couldn't have been more blown away. So I'm typically getting ready for spectacle anytime I'm going to see a Nolan film. Yeah. Like the name is a vote of confidence. You're like, okay, that, that means something. And that's how I go into it too. It's not that a gar- it's not a guarantee that I'm going to like the movie. Mm-hmm. I'm willing, I'm willing to dislike any movie from anybody, but there are a few directors that are on my must see list and I'm just, I'm just going to watch it. I'm always going to give it a try and maybe adjust some of my expectations based on it. So rush, how do you, how do you feel about him? I, for some reason, I think when, with his films, I'm always really impressed by them when I first see them, especially if I get to see them like in the theater on a whim, I probably think really fondly of like his filmography, but then if I don't watch like one of his films and come back to it, let's say like a few years later, it's because like, Oh yeah, I want to go see this again. I start to understand. I think the frustrations that a lot of like audience have when they are trying to follow along with like his, uh, his concepts and some of his uh, like plot constructions. So I like difficult personally, but I understand why not everybody, that's not everybody's cup of tea. I almost don't understand. <laughs> I don't really understand some of the Nolan hate. Like I get why this may not be your cup of tea. And this was a controversial film in a lot of ways. Like reviews were mixed to say the least. Uh, I think probably more than anything else he's done. Like um, things were either more clearly positive or negative, And this one is very like, some people do love it. A lot of people dismissed it, which um, that I have a hard time understanding. Like, I, I don't know. I don't get the Nolan hate. It just doesn't make sense to me. Like, you don't have to enjoy his movies. They may not be for you, but there seem to be people out there that are like ready to say or eager to say that this movie sucks. And I just can't make sense of that perspective, not to like spoil my, my overall review, but like, it's, it's really weird to me. Cause there's, there's a lot going on in this film that just 
is good. Like, is definitely good, whether or not you think the whole thing came together. But I, I don't know. I, I think people are weirdly hard on him, especially in this one. Where did you guys actually watch it? Like, how did you see this film? I saw it at uh, a theater here after they kind of like our mid COVID lull of, you know, hey, things might get back to normal and they're letting like 20% of the people back the in the tease. theater. And, you know, and I think we were two of eight people in the theater that went to go see it. And so I got to experience it kind of in its traditional sense in like Ultra AVX and enjoyed it in that capacity. But to comment on what you're saying, I think there's one of the big reasons there's so many people that are quick to dismiss it or have comments about it is because the world shut down and it became a big topic in terms of things to talk about. Like when the film was supposed to be released and then it got pushed back and then it got pushed back. And, you know, there's all that controversy about how that all goes down. And then you also have a world that doesn't have sports or other entertainment. So it's easier to point and yell and have a conversation about something like that. So I think that's one of the reasons it was in the headlines as much as it was, because I think if everything had just performed as per normal, it would have done great at the box office. People would have talked about it, liked it or not. There would have been some articles, but I don't think we would have got as much being said about it if it weren't for what was going on in the world already. Yeah, I mean, we kind of ended up in this like savior situation where it's like, this is what's going to keep cinemas alive. And I think Mm -hmm. cinemas were asking for it too. They're like, we need something. We need to show something that will get butts in seats, whether or not people actually want to show up in the theaters. So that was part of the expectation to some extent, I think. People had heard what the budget was like on this, which, by the way, from what I've read, this was the highest budget independent, not independent, um, non-franchise movie of all time, um, which is (laughs) incredible. Um, But that sets a certain expectation. So people are like, this will be my blockbuster. So, you know, if it, if it didn't live up to that, I, I guess I can see how uh, that might be frustrating. But Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know that when I was watching it, I think at about the halfway point, I thought it was a fairly mediocre film. I didn't think that anything had hit me hard enough yet that I thought, OK, this is spectacular from the moment it hit go. But uh, spoiler alert, the moment um, the protagonist starts to kind of travel backwards or be inverted is when my mind kind of melted a bit and I started to really enjoy what was being set up. Tim Rush, what about you? <laughs> I saw the film in a theater um, in San Diego. Uh, it was maybe like two or three weeks after the film had come out. At the time, I think San Diego was either not on a lockdown or they were like on super lax. It, it was super lax. But I, I saw it in the theater um, and I think like I didn't really want to go because, you know, what was going on. But at the same time, there was something that told me like, you know, this might be like the last time. Like you I ever might go ever, to a like, theater go, in your life. <laughs> I might ever go to a theater, right? And that it's tenant and that like, you know, I I had been chiefly looking forward to it for well over a year. Controversial choice to do that, you know, I understand. But at the same time, I live and die by the art. So uh, you know, the day that I went to the theater, I would say that there were five, maybe five people in the theater. I was actually kind of surprised that it was like so few people, given the fact that um, there was so much publicity and like the film itself was like so highly like anticipated. Um, but yeah, uh, I think my first impression upon walking out of the theater was that 
I did not understand anything that was said. <laughs> You're not <laughs> alone. Don't, don't feel bad. I didn't understand a thing that was said except maybe um, Robert Pattinson's Neil character. Um, like I, I understood everything he said. I didn't understand anything that anyone else said. Usually with, with films, um, you know, because I'm hard of hearing in um, my left ear. So usually when I go to the theater, I always bring earplugs um, anyway to sort of uh, narrow down the scope of a lot of like the ambient noise and like especially like the bass frequencies in the theater um, just so that I can hear the um, the dialogue better. So I, I did feel really good when I think some of the podcasts started being like released a few days later and all of the podcast people who were talking about the film were saying that they didn't understand the dialogue. I it's didn't feel too you. bad. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't just not this time. Well, let's circle back to the sound mixing a little bit. Cause that's like a big thing, but let's hit like some of the, 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 the bigger points in general. Um, and like, you know, do a really fast forward through the, through the plot and what didn't, didn't work for us. Um, okay. So <laughs> the plot, um, the, throughout this film, you are constantly being sort of caught up on like trying, they're trying to explain as they go, here's what's going on. And to me, this was the complete reaction to the biggest critique of inter or sorry, inception. I'm going to say interstellar and inception interchangeably because they are very similar words to me, but yeah, an in inception, like so many people were like, Oh, they spend so long just explaining, explaining, explaining. And it's not till like the end of the movie, then it's all action, which to me was great. I actually, I think that was super successful. Like I have, I have so few complaints about Inception. It was just, it was really solid movie to me. And so he was like, okay, fine. You didn't like that. Well, here we go. We're going to, we're just going to plow right through it. Try to keep up. I hope you're paying attention. Um, and then, you know, if you're not paying attention, he, he even like throws the little line in there that he's like, you know, don't try to understand it. Uh, just try to <laughs> feel it in the movie. That's referring to things happening in the movie. But like, obviously this is a meta comment setting the audience up for like, okay, I know, I know you're going to feel a little lost. Um, but I would say that I do think that's the right way to watch this movie. Um, a, a lot of the reactions I've seen are like, I didn't understand these six details about how the plot was moving forward. And I don't think that's to me, that's if, if you need that to enjoy a film or to say that a movie's good, like you're not watching movies in the same way that I do. Like it, it there were so many other things that did succeed that even though I can easily criticize some of the complexity and the lack of explanation in the plot, so many amazing things still shine through uh, in spite of that. I think anytime you've got, time travel or any sort of avenue like that. I mean, Nolan's just been stepping it up in terms of complexity and storytelling with every film in terms of time. That's kind of his, his thing. And I think the moment you try to linearize it too much, uh, you get lost in that and then lose what's actually happening. Cause I know for me, when I rewatched Tenet, I started to try and piece things together backwards or forwards or whichever way it was working and go, okay, well, when they did this, but this is what happens there. And there's still parts that I don't quite fully understand, but then I think you start to lose the point of the film and what is actually happening. So for me, I think a lot of the criticism comes from wanting it laid out so that by the time you leave the theater or leave the film that you're done and the questions have been answered, but there's still so much thought process that's needed after a film like Tenet to kind of understand what happened and then you can get lost in that confusion. 
So I, I think it's, it, it's what you want out of the film. And if you want it to be all wrapped up and just neatly presented to you, it's going to be really tough on a film like that. Yeah. I mean, I feel like often people want there to be even more complexity than there is in Nolan films, like after interstellar and inception, the amount I heard from people saying how complicated it was. Like, I, I really think a lot of people are trying to read into more than is there. Like, in some ways, I think it is a little more surface level than people think. The best example is afterwards, I saw all these people with conspiracy, the biggest fan theory, conspiracy theory, biggest fan theory <laughs> out of this was that uh, Neil was actually Max being um, Kat's mm-hmm. son and that he had traveled yep. through time and blood. That, that's crazy. Like that, that is so clearly not what's going on here. And if you're looking for that kind of a twist in it like you are missing the point of the movie you're not seeing the forest through the trees like the, the mm-hmm. you know it's not he's not trying to m night Shyamalan us here it's not that there's something really weird going on that he's not going to let us in on um and even i also think the, like the end of um inception of you know the the spinning the totem not dropping it's not supposed to be as deep as some people take it it's like no it's like this is art and he left some ambiguity at the end of the art that you can walk home and interpret the way that you want, but it's not about yeah, piecing together exactly. a puzzle that he left a million clues for you along the way, no. which, you know, I, I think people do the same thing with, um, the shining as well. You see, like there's that documentary with like the conspiracy theories of like, here's all the clues he left for you. I'm like, that is usually not true most of the time. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'm, I'm going to push back on just one, one little minor detail yes. about this. Cause that's why you're here. <laughs> <laughs> so the story is right. That, Nolan sort of conceptualized this film over the course of 20 years, right? It was like he thought about this film and, and yeah, all of his films are super, super complex. And I think that like sort of like the 101 part of this kind of storytelling, right, is that like when you sort of build worlds like this, you do really have to make sure that like both in like the brainstorming phase and on the written script, like the rules have to make sense so that there aren't like little contradictions that might come up in the edit that people of the internet can just go ahead and like tear down. Like, well, this doesn't make sense because if character A did this and character B does this other thing, like they're not supposed to do those things, right? Tenet seems like a world that is just so thoroughly thought out that I can't imagine that's somebody like Christopher Nolan, who is just such a, like a stickler for detail. I just can't imagine that he's someone like a filmmaker that would leave like those kind of like ambiguities, like in the air or leave something left quote unquote for like uh, an audience to figure out for himself. I, I think that he may leave some things to look a little ambiguous, but he very well knows the answers to all the questions. I think sometimes people think that questions are being raised that weren't actually questions like the Maximilian Neil thing. It's like, that wasn't, that wasn't the question in the movie kind of like Mm -hmm. there are, there, there are things that he's hoping you're going to figure out, but I feel like he very much wants to, he does want you to be able to get it after a few viewings. Like I, I, he still is such a, like a mainstream filmmaker, you know, like he is make, he's trying to make the weirdest popular films possible. I totally agree with that. Um, in thinking about this, like, right, if we're if we're making a film, if we're making our own film, and we're making the kind of film that 
we specifically want it to be sophisticated enough that an audience member maybe does take them like two or three times to like fully understand when they watch it. I think the details have to be so much more on point. I do agree, Tyler, with your, uh, with your assessment that, you know, there probably are some questions that were just like fabricated via Reddit or (laughs) the ether, (laughs) the seas of the ether. But, um, but whatever questions do sort of lie within the cut, I don't think there is a stone that was not placed there mm. accidentally or just by chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything is intentional. Well, from, from what I've heard, the people dissecting it in Reddit have found, like, as you spend the time piecing together what is on screen, it does it does all work. So the, there, the, he didn't end up leaving any big plot holes. Like it does actually connect in the way that, you know, what, what is said does tie into what's supposed to be happening, which is great that somebody else did that homework. Cause I'm sure as hell not going to do it. It seems like a, yeah, that'd be one complicated lot. map to draw. Out. Well, and I'll say like, I, yeah, I did not, uh, I did not understand a lot until, until, Maybe I watched some of the explainer videos afterwards, like, and and then I did start to have this feeling of like, oh, it is not as weird as you necessarily think. And if you try to have it figured out too early in the movie, you may not. There are still some pieces that I don't think ever came together, uh, especially like towards the end. I think the, the, the whole ending is a complete mess, but I, I slightly forgive it because uh, it still overall worked for me. Um Anyway, okay, so let, let's just go through like some of the, the main developments here. First of all, we've got our protagonist who, a confusion I've seen online is his name is not protagonist, which a lot of people writing about it seem to, I think there's a connection, people that watched with closed captions and people that think that his, they, they named a character protagonist because like his, he's just an untitled character. He does not have yeah, a name. He, uh, just he's called just the like, protagonist in the script, though. So that's probably yeah, what they're in, they're going for. The but credits, his name, sure. yeah, he's he's not ever called. Hey, protagonist, come over here. No, but it killed me because people were I, just I, maybe this is my response to other people's reviews. Like I was watching the kind of funny review, and like they were di- dissecting this idea of like the name or his title being a part of the plot, and it's like that's not in the movie. Like we're we're adding that on top of it based on. Uh, yeah, reading about the script later words, but or afterwards, but I mean, it's the same as Fight Club, like Edward Norton is not, but, he's also the protagonist or, yeah. you know, like it's, it's just an untitled character. So, yeah, it's actually one of my, my few um, negative comments about it is I feel like that was completely unnecessary. Like just giving having him, him unnamed like, or yeah. Yeah. Like having him unnamed to me wasn't a wasn't part of the story in any way, if that makes sense. Like if his name was Dom or Joe or John or whatever, I think the story, everything still plays out the name. And even when he refers to himself as the protagonist, all of that still works. If he has a name, the fact that he never has a name, the only story logical thing I can think of is that he would find out he was part of the organization is the only thing I can think of. And it still feels like just such an unnecessary thing because he's never addressed in the film as a person with no name. He's just to the audience, someone with no name. So that just, it yeah. felt like a weird like, don't worry thing. It. It's like, yeah. why is that a thing? It shouldn't have just, it never should have been a thing. Um, yeah. 
I totally agree with you, Olaf. I I think I'll go I'll go a step further. Um, it, it would be like in those old like detective like noir films or whatever, when like uh, the detective has to go find like an informant or something in like a dark alley, and then they'll just say like, "Ask for Johnny Two Stones" or whatever. It's just like that's not his name, right? But that's what he refers to himself <laughs> as. And as an extension, that's what other people refer to him as. So I'm thinking like based Deep on the, the same conceit. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was different because that was, well, I guess it's not different. Okay, but, yeah, we don't um, need to get to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but what I'm saying is like, just based on that though, like why can't we just refer to him as the protagonist? I guess this is to Tyler specifically, um, because if it is the protagonist in the script, and he refers to himself as the protagonist on two occasions. Sure, we can. I mean, we totally can. We can and will for the purposes of this. I just had seen other people reading into it, and I'm like, nah, I don't, there, there's no there there. Um, is is there is there a moment in the film where someone asks his name and he denies them it? No, no, no. Like, I no, don't think so. Like so to me, yeah. to me, that would have justified it if at some like if that was a a character point about him keeping that. To himself but for it to be something that only the audience can throw into the dissection of things right like knowing what the script is and looking at the credits and then going oh now how do i push that into the story idea of the film it's like it just for example in drive um ryan gosling's character is called the driver right so mm-hmm. he's that's just what he's referred to in the script it's what he's credited as but in the film he doesn't call himself the driver in the same way that um, this character calls himself the protagonist. So I'm just curious as like, to like, there's um people that have a, fan theories afterwards that are like, you know, was he the driver? Cause he was driving the plot or like, it's like, whoa. you don't need to read into it. <laughs> <laughs> Galaxy brain. There is a scene when the protagonist is on the, he's on Sator's yacht. And it's like at night when Sator has that first like fight with his wife and it's about to get ugly, but then it doesn't. And then there's a point where when the protagonist is caught snooping, they're sort of asking Sator is basically like sort of trying to dress down a protagonist and figure out who he is. And the gist of the whole conversation is the protagonist is essentially saying it doesn't really matter what I tell you, like as in terms of who I am, like you're not going to believe me. Like they, they kind of had this Mm -hmm. dance where it was just like, all right, going by names doesn't make sense anyway, because I'm not going to give you my real name, even if you ask, and you're not going to believe me. Even if I tell you it was was one of those sort of exchanges. Mm -hmm. All right. I'll give you that. I think that's, is it weird how often, is it weird how often James Bond uses his real name? Yeah. (laughs) You know, like I I think about that sometimes I'm like, why is he the worst secret agent name ever? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Seriously. Um, absolutely how much would you say you guys actually understood or were able to follow as things were going like at the as the movie was closing and robert pattinson was saying goodbye and hello i'm pretty sure the first time i walked out of the theater my exact words were i understood 10 percent of that film and i can't wait to see it again okay 10 percent is pretty low (laughs) (laughs) well mostly because like i could i didn't understand any of the dialogue like i said so i was just watching for me i was just watching just watching pictures um since then i think i I have a pretty good understanding of everything that's happened i I think that's like a real issue maybe we do need to address the sound thing because like 
I I hate closed captions if you don't have a purpose for them. And like for people that need them, like yeah, obviously, like if they are the way that you're able to understand what's going on, but they've become this like everybody uses them all the time. Um, so I, I always want them off, like if I, if I can. And so it was really frustrating to me that by keeping them off, I was actually making a compromise. Like I was choosing to understand the plot less in this movie, which never is an issue. Like I, I don't have this with anything else I watch, even if I'm watching on my iPhone or my TV, whatever, like I can follow it. Um, but yeah, actually, I guess I didn't say where I watched this, which was on my, I got a, a good TV this year. It's the first time we've had like an awesome TV. It's big and OLED. And, um, so I, it, so it was also the first time in a long time I bought a disc. It was the same price to buy the 4k, uh, is it called Blu-ray still? I don't know the, the, the 4k disc that I can play in my PS5. And, um, like it looks so awesome um you know it it looks better than streaming all of a sudden you can see the difference you see what is lost when you're streaming a 4k file you know like i would say there's a bigger difference between a disc version of a movie and a streaming version than there is between a 4k and a 1080 streaming file like you can you can see more of a difference to me um because like the all, all of a sudden like i could see the grain difference between the uh the IMAX and non IMAX shots, which like, that's pretty cool. And that gets lost in streaming because all the grain gets pretty compressed. But, um, so anyway, that was an awesome experience. Why was I saying that? Oh yeah. How much did I understand this as well? So, uh, closed captions were off and I was watching it with a friend that had already seen it and asked partway through. I'm like, okay, I did. I, I never do this, but I did actually, we happened to have already paused the movie and he was like, can you explain a few things to me? <laughs> And that shouldn't be the case. You know, like I, I don't, I don't want to be in that situation and I probably could have left it and then waited till the end to be like, and see what I understood. But, um, I missed some things. Like I didn't understand at the end that Sator coming in on the helicopter to visit that day of his wife. I didn't catch. I just missed that. That was the future him and that the, uh, you know, present him in Vietnam had gone to shore or had left the yacht. I just missed that. I thought we were interacting with the Passator, like whatever. I, my my bad, but also I usually don't miss stuff like that. Um, so I would say that I came out of that getting probably ninety percent of it um, to just be on the other <laughs> spectrum of things. And I I don't know what it is, but I have never had an issue hearing anything in a Nolan film. I mean, I mean, we're even talking about Bane and uh, and how bad he was in The Dark Knight Rises to understand. Uh, I remember seeing the preview um, that they had playing before. I can't remember what film it was, but, and then all the backlash of that audio. And then that ended up changing his voice in the final cut so that people could actually make out what he's hearing. But I think maybe it's also because I subscribe to the film a little differently and maybe I'm analyzing it in other ways, but I'm not just listening for the cues I'm kind of taking it all in. And I don't know if that works to my advantage and I'm actually hearing the exact same thing as everyone else. I don't know if I have good hearing or if I'm in a better theater or what? Yeah, I don't know. And it's like, maybe I'm glazing over certain parts that get answered later. And I I have no idea, but it's never been an issue for me. And I've always thought of it as kind of odd, but so I I wanted to bring up, this is the first, this is the first Nolan movie that I didn't see in the theater though. So I've always agreed with mm. you in the past. I would always see everything day yeah. one in the theater, but I watched this at home. I live in an apartment building, so I couldn't keep the volume 
way up. Like when things started blowing up, I had to keep turning it down and I had to keep turning yes. it back up for dialogue. And like, I hate that. I don't want to be and, riding the volume button, but. And I'll completely agree with that. I think that his mix levels can be dangerous, especially I remember seeing Interstellar and actually thinking it was too loud, like from a safety standpoint. I'm like, I think this is going to hurt my ears. It's so loud. Sure, I mean, yeah. I love it, but I think it's incredibly loud and to a, almost to a detriment. But I remember when Solo came out and everyone uh, jumped on to uh, Bradford Young's cinematography for being too dark. But what that actually brought to light was how many theaters weren't up to snuff for showing the full dynamic range of the image. So while he did shoot it a lot darker, it actually came more to the theater experience and how well those were kept. Same with Game of Thrones, the um, Long Night or whatever that episode was called that was too dark for everyone. It just goes to prove how many people's uh, way of interpreting that art isn't calibrated properly to enjoy it i think it's a bit of the same issue that we had with the long night of that it was like they mastered it for mm -hmm. a certain expectation of how people are going to watch it and they were shocked at how mismatched that was to reality and i think same thing like nolan clearly wanted this to be a theater experience and then when you get home on your tv with out a sound bar which i don't have it's like um maybe this doesn't yeah. work the way that you expected so yeah. i mean well, it, did, it didn't even... ruin the movie but yeah, you know, Zimmer has been quoted as saying that the reason he likes to score films is he can play in sound levels that you can't for other mediums. mediums. So that goes right. to prove right there that they're pushing those um, experiences to their extreme. And it's Nolan the is the, of, uh, yeah, he's the epitome of wanting you to watch that on the biggest, most insane experience, the screen, resolution, sound, you name it. So when that all gets stripped away and compressed in all the wrong ways you start clipping all the things that matter the most and then you combine that with an intensely complex way of telling stories you're pretty much asking for people to come out confused like they are you can't be upset at them for that if that experience happens you know that's what you were subscribing to if you shoot something as dark as game of thrones and people complain it's too dark you'd be like well you played in that realm and now you have to be okay with people having that reaction to it. I understood so much more of like the sound actually sounded way better when I watched it at home. Um, I do have a sound bar, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I, and sometimes I even wonder like, you know, to a theater for every theater house and every room in a theater house, you know, the sounds have to be sort of like acoustically like tuned and engineered in such a way so that like the sound is perfect for each room. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that's always the case. So, mm -hmm. you know, if hundreds of thousands of people would have been able to like go out and watch Tenet in theaters, you know, it's possible that there might have been like a larger pie of the audience who may not have had like such a big problem with the sound as other other places, just mm -hmm. depending on like where you went to go watch it. So I have a complaint that I, I don't think you'll expect. Um, I really don't like the way, and most of all in this movie, I noticed the most, I don't like the way Nolan is using IMAX. The images look ridiculously good. Like, obviously they look amazing. It's like, it's like the, as good as film has ever looked. Um, the fact that he allows the IMAX shots and, and non IMAX, which I have a question about that, but, 
uh, to shift aspect ratios, I think is just the worst decision. There's moments where yeah, I'm 100% he would, that. he'd be showing it. So it's full screen, which it looked like it was 16 by nine on my TV, filling up every bit of the screen, two shots of that. And then it would cut into the black bars for the next 10 shots. And then it would cut back like cutting and cutting and cutting between changing aspect ratios. And there isn't meaning behind it. It is not reflecting anything about the story, but it's, it's a really significant thing that you're seeing in the image. It's a change of like 30% of the whole picture is, is changing shot to shot without any meaning within the film. I, I just, I can't make sense of that. There's other movies that change aspect ratio. Great example is a uh, hotel. Wait, what's the, what's the Wes Anderson movie? Um, uh, Grand Budapest hotel is changing aspect ratios as you move through time. And I think it's beautiful and wonderful. Like I love it. It's uh, very square in the earlier time period. And then it moves to wider, uh, to widescreen as, as time moves forward. Um, it works because it makes sense and it's telling you something. And this is not telling you anything. And it drove me crazy. I, I, I can't understand why he's doing it. Like everything else I kind of can forgive. And like, he's, he's, he's trying something. He's trying a complicated plot. He's trying weird action sequences. Maybe they succeed or not. But this one, I'm like, this was just the wrong decision from the beginning. I have a thought, but I want to ask Olaf a question first. (laughs) When you see, when you, when you, when you go to watch, uh, Let's just say Nolan movies because he's always shooting in IMAX. When you go to see a film of his in the theater, how much does this bother you? Or do you even notice? I mean, I'm sure you notice, but like, how does it bother you when it happens? The aspect ratio changing? In the theater from the 70 millimeter 35 to... It's actually, because it's even more extreme in the theater. Like the the IMAX ratio is almost like 4.3. Like it is very tall. And it is like it really encompasses things. And I remember watching, uh, I think it was in Dunkirk and those opening shots and they're just boom, that's everywhere. You're right in there and it's, it's amazing. And then you'll cut away. And then suddenly you, for me, it just takes you out of the film experience, right? And the immersion in the story, because now you've got a very obvious reminder that you're watching a movie. So it's kind of like bad cuts. Like they're just hard stops that quickly make you go, Hey, you're just watching, you're watching a movie. You can, you forget about being just kind of into it. I would rather a, a commitment to just one of those aspect ratios. Just stay there and keep it there. And that'll never be an issue all the way. But now I know that no one has been pushing more and more IMAX into every feature to try. And I'm sure he's going to get to the point where he's just going to shoot it 100%. But, I, but that would I be think, fine. I would be okay with that. I, I would be fine. But I remember watching an Interstellar and you know, you're so big and you're so close. And all I could think about was how out of focus some of these shots were. I can't believe I, mm-hmm. that's just completely out of focus. Like what's going on here? And I know the IMAX I, I camera is massive, that, right? But, but that to me, and then you'd be shifting aspect ratios and they cut to the and It's just, it's frustrating because you understand why, because you've got like this massive capture. So why not show that? But I feel like at the bare minimum, you need to commit a sequence and then when it cuts, you're into a new experience and a new scene and a new setting. And then I can be okay with that. But when it happens in uh, a specific sequence, that's when it it really just takes me right out of it. I mean, I'm not going to harp on it too much because the IMAX footage is phenomenal, but it just feels unnecessary. There was something I was confused about watching the behind the scenes because they were saying that it's, it's the most IMAX that's ever been shot for a film. Um, 
but that the rest was shot on 65 millimeter. That's what he said. Mm -hmm. I mean, IMAX is 70 millimeter. What is 65 millimeter uh, like? Because the aspect ratio was completely different. Like five millimeters. I mean, obviously it's a different amount of perfs. I don't know. Like, I don't know how they ended up being so different, but like I could, I could clearly see the grain on my TV when it was the 65, the, you know, shot on the Panavision and on the IMAX, I could not, it was completely clean. The grain was too small to perceive on my TV, Um, but I could see it as it changed back and forth. What is 65 mil that is not IMAX? Because of the, um, the way it is shot, uh, the way the, um, the cellular is divided up. I think IMAX actually goes left to right, not up and down. I may be completely wrong, but, uh, I'm just looking into it right now. Yeah. I mean, I bet you're right. I, I did a quick Google and I didn't find it, but it was just, it was confusing to me, but like either way, it's like either crop the IMAX to be less tall or because here's the thing is like other movies already face this decision all the time. Like we sort of just accept whatever aspect ratio movies and we don't question it. It's just like, okay, here it is. But if you look at the way that like an Alexa uh, LF or mini LF works, if you shoot open gate on those, it's a very tall image. I don't know the ratio, but it's like, it's, it's not that far from four by three. Like it's not 16 by nine. It's taller than that. It's super, super tall. And everybody crops that and just takes it away. And they're like, here, we're just going to throw that data away. And we're happy with that. They're not jumping back and forth and like, and not, they're like, well, this shot feels more cinematic. So I'm going to make it taller. Cause I don't want to throw away the data. But then when it comes to IMAX there, it's like, no, we can't throw away any part of the frame. Cause it's all golden, but on a full frame Alexa camera, it's not, I don't, that just, it makes th- no sense to me. So I think that the reason that this happens is in part to justify the cost of the IMAX ticket. I mean, let's just say like all of the footage, the 65 and the IMAX was all like spliced down to uh, or cropped down to 16 by nine. Right. Then at that point, why go, why go to IMAX? Why? I mean, of course the screen is still bigger, but you're paying Mm. almost literally double the price, almost double the price. Right. So it would be sort of like, uh, when you're shooting something on like, uh, photography, if you're shooting something on like analog film, you shoot something in uh, you shoot a bunch of stuff in 35 millimeter. And then all of a sudden you shoot in either medium format or even large format. If you shoot something four by five, like a photographer is not going to crop that image down so that it sits to look exactly in the same aspect ratio of the, uh, yeah, the 35 that's a, that's millimeter. That's a good, it's a good comparison. Okay. But it's... you could, you could take the 65 millimeter or you could even take 35 millimeter and you could, you know, flip the, what you were just saying all off of like, depending if you're loading the film to shoot horizontal or vertical, I don't know how you describe that difference. I don't shoot film movies. <laughs> um, but you could arrange it to shoot with the maximum film area possible on a Panavision and choose to use a square aspect ratio of it and display that at the same ratio as the IMAX stuff. And I bet most people wouldn't notice the extra grain. I guess that's the difference. They're like, we don't want you to see the grain because you'd be punching in. I don't know. I, 
whatever. But I think the point is the um, the screen real estate, like going in there and yeah. the screen real estate is there. So why go into an IMAX to see that same ratio where it's well, like you could, right now it'll could, be to have those that wow factor, that boom, like holy crap, and then take you back down. But they and could then, make boom. the opposite decision. They could crop the sides off. They could, uh, what is it called where you have the black columns? Um, they could take the sides off of the 65, but then it would be a little less and, sharp. But know. then punch it up. Yeah, exactly. I. Yeah. So my original, before I ask Olaf the question, um, I think my original reading on this is that we're sort of like in the minority because we're watching the technical aspect of an image is something that we do, but like 95% of the audience probably doesn't. I would bet that most audience members that go into an IMAX movie don't, I bet you like a lot of people don't even notice when like an aspect ratio changes if if they're really immersed in what they're watching, no. especially if they're like really notice- enjoying it. Yeah. With Batman, I didn't notice. I didn't start noticing until Interstellar, and then I noticed a lot. But um, yeah. another weird technical thing, I'm sure no, you guys don't have the answer for, but I, maybe you can imagine an answer. This is just super weird to me watching the uh, special features DVD or Blu-ray. Was um, They shot this film both backwards and forwards, right? So I was trying to figure this out as we were watching. As I was watching, I was like, how are they doing the backwards stuff? And basically, they would just decide shot by shot, like, okay, we need to shoot this one forwards and show it backwards. So we'll do it both ways and play it back both ways. But what was confusing to me, so that makes sense. Totally get it. What was weird is that they would actually not just play it backwards. They didn't play any of the film backwards. They loaded the cameras backwards. So they had to modify how the whole mount worked like how how the film reel was spinning within the IMAX cameras and they'd have one set of IMAX cameras that are forward and one set of IMAX cameras that are backwards and they would shoot it in the direction it needs to be and I don't know why they would do that instead of just shooting it forwards and reversing the film later like you are really clearly adding a step of complication by loading it backwards and keeping track of two different sets of cameras and sets of tapes that need to be like do you guys know why would they shoot it backwards? Anyone? I don't. I don't have the answer, um, but I don't believe it's as complicated to make it go backwards as you think it is. I don't know for certain, but from what I, the little bit I know, I don't think it's as complicated. But my guess would be something to do with motion blur and also playback, especially when but you're watching it on something. Oh. Is is my only my only thoughts? I don't. Otherwise, I'm with you completely on dailies or if it's on a machine or like a telecine or whatever they're called to uh to scan like that's my only real yeah, okay. guess yeah because is because if is yeah if you don't have to especially for the dailies because then there's no post-processing involved you don't have to like to flip like, it and then play back you can just push play yeah, the files. and it's already yeah. doing what it needs to do so as far as reference you know, it okay, might be yeah. less about the capture and affecting the capture and more about just playback on the dailies very quickly, especially for something as kind of weird to wrap your head around as that. Because I can't think right. of a technical issue other than if no, it I mean, affected the motion blur in some way. Well, yeah, that was my thought, too. I'm like, hey, motion blur is the only thing. But the, the more I think about it, like, it can't be different. Motion blur is the same backwards and forwards. There's no way that that changes. It seems like it was extra work, and I'm trying to figure out why they mm. would do it. Um, a little anecdote for me. Like, the first time I ever tried to make any sort of short film, which never got finished, and I didn't know how to make films. Like, this was I was, I was an idiot. But was uh, this. It was like trying to act the whole thing backwards <clears throat> and then play it all forwards. 
Um, so mm. when he says he's been working on this for 20 years, I have a feeling it's in the same way that I did was like, Oh, things look cool when they go backwards. But like, he didn't have th the script did not, this story did not exist. He was just like, this looks neat. And then brought it back mm. around, uh, once he had the budget for it. Yeah. I think it, it was definitely informed by his growing level of complexity and how to execute a film. Well, so, okay. That was, that, that's actually one of the biggest things that I came away with like my overall criticism of this is like that growing complexity is I think why I and a lot of people walked away frustrated because like he decided to make this complicated in a lot of different ways. First of all, he had an enormous budget. So this was a huge action movie. It was one of the most complicated setups of, of any of his films, um, just in terms of like, okay, the rules of this universe, there's a lot of them. He was decided to be really ambitious about uh, not explaining them to you very much and like just trusting the audience. Um, and what else? I mean, there's other aspects of it too, but like, oh, it, I mean, also just like uh, the like cinematically as well. So things like shooting it all on IMAX, doing everything practical. Um, so like there's all these levels where he's like, I'm going to do everything on hard mode. Oh, and also <laughs> leaving the characters relatively undeveloped in the same way that he has been moving towards, I feel like, with like with Dunkirk. Dunkirk is so much more disconnected from characters than Interstellar or Inception. And it was that same feeling of like, we're going to keep everybody a bit at arm's reach, which is less of a mainstream way of storytelling and a little more experimental. So he's doing everything in the most difficult way. And I wish he had been a little more selective of like, look, this is really complicated, so we're going to keep the action a little bit simpler. This will be a smaller movie or it's like, okay, well, it's going to be this big. So let's strip down the plot a little bit, like less total things happen so we can give a little bit more air for explaining the universe. Um, I just wish some element he decided to scale back so that we could feel a little bit more at home in it and like, uh, yeah, experience it a little bit more feeling like we can grasp this universe. Christopher Nolan doesn't want us to feel at home. He just wants us to... I don't know. I think it's cool. Like it's, <laughs> there's nothing, there's nothing homely about his films. Is there like, well, no, no, no. But I feel like usually he does, he does want you to understand it. Like the, the, the interstellar being or inception actually being the best example. Cause like, it's, that's pretty complicated, but like there's so much exposition. Like they just talk and talk and talk to make sure like you get it so that when the action sequences are happening. You're not trying to, you're not thinking about the rules. You're like absorbing the cinema and the Batman movies. I mean, they're not, they're, those aren't like stretches. Like they are mainstream. Like everybody can get this. And even Memento, which is like, you know, what made me fall in love with him. I watched the movie so many times when it came out. It's, it's not that hard to get, especially on a second viewing. Like it's all there. He's trying to give you all the clues before it's over. And I mean, actually maybe, Maybe the best way to explain this is the prestige where like the beginning of the movie, he tells you, this is what the movie's about. This is what's going to happen. And then it happens. And at the end, you're like, oh, I guess, I guess it was all there in front of me, but you, you still feel surprised. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm all for complicated, overthought, complex, crazy films that require multiple viewings to get, because I think. I think that's what cinema suffers from the most is assuming the audience doesn't get it and explaining it to them over and over. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you get a film that really hand feeds you everything. And I would much rather have to think about things and maybe even have to see a film again to really 
get it, but I think I'm also in the minority. And we talked about, you know, how many people that go see a film actually care about, say, something like an aspect ratio. At the end of the day, most people that see a movie see it once. Very few people watch it over and over and over again like we do. Um, I know, usually I don't. Just, but... And, but that's the thing is like even the critique that you're bringing on it right now, most people will have like, I saw a 10 and I thought it was all right. Okay, cool. Bye. And then they're on to the next thing. And uh, the vast majority of people who overthink it or want to know more about it, you know, that we're, we're a very small minority of people. You have to think about that when you're making a film that you're making it for a lot of different types of people. And uh, it can be, it can be tough. So, but that's, that's my personal bias as to want a film that doesn't just hand feed me too much because a film like this runs the risk of overfeeding you all the information and then just dulling it all down or not enough, which some people will feel, and then having people be confused. Uh, there's There are actually a couple of scenes. Uh, you've only watched it once, I'm assuming, right, Tyler? Yeah, one and a third time. So I started again okay. and didn't get through it yet. <laughs> the, there are some scenes in the film where upon rewatch, it's like The Prestige where before things happen and things are revealed, like it's right there in the dialogue. Um, mm-hmm. Like there, uh, the, uh, the scene where um, the second time the protagonist, for instance, uh, meets up with Priya after they go to the Freeport for the first time. And he's telling her how there was like uh, two people who jumped out of like the turnstile and one was like inverted. And she was asking like, did they both appear at the same time? And he's like, yeah. And then she says, it's the same person. And then he just yeah. kind of yada yadas it and the script just kind of yeah. keeps going. They, they like drop it. Like, you know, there's no sort mm-hmm. of uh, investigation no into like it what that. It just keeps going. It, it keeps going so fast that you miss it. Um, and then the scene where right before the film itself inverts, where they're on the highway and the protagonist has to decide whether or not he's going to throw the case over to, to Seder. And then he sees his inverted self coming backwards on the highway, but he doesn't. Like, we don't know as an audience that it's his inverted self yet. But in that first scene where he throws the case, he very clearly is holding the algorithm in his hand. But that cut is like an nth of a second. And there's no way that you would have seen it, like, even in the theater the first time because you had, like, Nolan had not shown us the object yet. So even if you saw it, you wouldn't have known what that thing was. Um, So... He he does a lot of like prestige work in this. I would say like he's he's giving you all of the information, but he's just giving them to you like in the most subtle of breadcrumbs. Yeah, one scene I particularly enjoyed on a second watch was where he has his wife um, on the other side of the glass, and he's asking the questions, and but everything's coming out. But yeah, this this scene where it's coming, the voice is coming in backwards, and then like rescrambled and. At first, that scene is very confusing, but on the second watch, you're listening to the order that things are being asked and why he's asking them because now he's going backwards. It was, It's an intriguing scene on, on a second and third watch as to how that was layered so well. But in on a first watch, you would be like, what is going on right now? Yeah, I did not. Yeah, it's like the conversation the itself, the Q&A. The Q&A itself is basically an inversion of itself. Like the questions it was so, and the Like the audio like, and the, yeah. Well, so did you good. guys catch about that? That Kenneth Branagh was doing his lines backwards with a Russian accent for that. So he was performing like same thing as like loading the reels mm-hmm. backwards. Like 
he performed yeah. the backwardsness. So we're actually hearing somebody speak backwards, which is I'll, just I'll adds throw, to I'll throw another backwards wrench into that. You can listen to the tenant score backwards and hear what I, the score I sounds assumed. like backwards <laughs> yeah. because there's a lot of backwards uh, music progression in it. But sure. uh, I think I think something that I'd like to talk about is some of the stuff that I actually think was really weak in the film as far as like just straight up characters. Um, because as much as I enjoyed the film, I really didn't enjoy um, the wife. I think that the protagonist was very tonally kind of the one weird off in the film. Like he was almost overly confident and two steps ahead, but not actually or acting like it. And Sador at one point goes so dark that I, I didn't understand why it went that way. Um, and even my wife commented after the scene, she's like, that felt really out of place. And I don't know what the intention of that kind of scene is it just to make sure that he is completely irredeemable and never coming back and then finally um the way she gets rid of him at the end just felt so blatantly set up the whole time that it kind of lost a lot of the tenant magic from everything else i don't know how you guys felt about it i didn't really know why they he decided to keep like jd washington so distant as a character like it just seemed it seemed like a bit of an like it it didn't make the movie better to have him be somebody we don't get to know uh i would have rather Mm -hmm. him be more of a character in the same way that he was in inception yeah totally i mean i think no inception wouldn't be the film we remember if he hadn't had a backstory and a personal an interior life like where we get to know him Mm -hmm. um and i wish he had given more of this to the protagonist as well i did like cat um i liked that they let her be as tall as she is because like i I was i was like watching like as a character i liked that that she's like Mm -hmm. um i was watching him like oh i guess maybe it's just some shorter actors and like she's kind of tall and i looked up after and she's six foot three like she is tall and they put her in heels in almost every shot and it's like that becomes part of the story. It's not just a visual thing. Um, mm-hmm. It's like she has a different physical presence on screen to most. Like they just usually don't let the female leads or like the the love interest yeah. or anything like that be so physically dominant over the the men in the scene. And I thought it was really cool. Uh, which th- that's not exactly her character. Like that's not all of her character. Um, but I feel like for a Nolan film, they gave her more to do than than the women often have. Um, but yeah, overall, I mean, like I was, I was comparing it to Dunkirk. They kept everybody at more of a distance than I wish they had. I think, uh, this is not out of character for, you know, our Bonds and our Jason Bournes. Um, also like protagonists who, you know, when you really think about it, we don't know that much about them. I mean, Jason Bourne, like literally doesn't know anything about himself. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. right. So yeah, no, I actually I actually thought it was kind of cool because in a way, you know, with uh, with Washington, we kind of got our American version of James Bond. Um, yeah, yeah that's for sure what he's just, trying to do. Yeah. yeah, just so totally cool. Um, I was I was down with it. I really like Kat's performance as well. Um, as far as her relationship with Sater goes, Olaf, you're right. You know, that that scene where stuff just kind of like breaks out. Uh, it's so spontaneously like volatile. Um, but I do think also like throughout the, the film up to that point, everything about his relationship with her is sort of like a, 
a matchbox that's about to like just be set alight, you know. Um, mm-hmm. She tells the protagonist that he's like very violent, like on multiple occasions. He reminds her himself on multiple occasions, like that he's very violent. Um, and the fact that she's not presented to us in the way that we normally see in movies is like a woman who's been very obviously physically abused and things like that. You know, she doesn't have like bruises and like Mm. Nolan lets her be like super beautiful and super glamorous. um, Even though, you know, he physically like attacks her. He's got like a gun to her head at some other points, um, multiple points. He, yeah. Like it's all there. It's, I don't think it, it, Mm. the way that he acts should not be a surprise just in the, in, in the sense that, uh, you know, maybe he does look at her like a trophy and he's like, I would rather not damage the trophy, but uh, he obviously like reaches his limit. I feel I, I did like pretty much all the performances like Kenneth Branagh was like way over the top. Like, but I, I kind of kept forgetting it was him, even though you look at him, you're like, you know who that is. It was so far over the top and I did still get lost in the character. So like it, it worked for me. Um, I feel like, you know, Robert Pattinson, this was, this was the movie that sold me on him. I know he's been doing all these other art films that people are saying are great, but now seeing this, I'm like, yep, he's awesome. Um, and, and doing a great job, but that's part of what like I was frustrating was that like, I felt like he got, he got more developed than the protagonist that we're supposed to understand better. Like in a James Bond movie, you'd be like, Oh, Q has a bit more of a connection to the audience or has or like reveals a little bit more of himself. And then James Bond stays like fully shut down and interior. And like, you, you don't have any perspective and would be kind of weird. And that's a little bit where we ended up. I, I feel like so. I think I don't know, I but think that's more writing than acting. This is the first time where as the film finished, I couldn't have wanted a sequel more, not for your traditional, just wanting more, but I'm really curious as to like, like th- that's one of the best endings to um, a film in terms of just really throwing you so much that you have to now process. But when when he says like this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship for you and the end of a great one for me, like I really want to see that relationship because we're Turns literally a right at the beginning people. of one. Yeah, so right at the beginning of one and right <laughs> at the end of one, I would love to see what that looks like, you know, from a science fiction standpoint, I think it could be very interesting, but just from a chemistry standpoint, I'm curious to see because my critiques of their, their characters are almost specific to what you guys just talked about in terms of their flaws and, and how we're just getting introduced to these characters and who, who they are. Like Robert Pattinson knows who he is in this film and the protagonist doesn't quite yet. So to now see, that part of it where the protagonist is now in on it and perhaps Robert Pattinson's character, uh, Neil isn't. And to see that dynamic, I think it could be a very interesting, um, new exchange, but I don't think we'll see that. When Neil says at the end, you know, we get up to some stuff. I'm like, I, I want to mm-hmm. see that film. I want to see that stuff. Um, I want to see that stuff. <laughs> but, uh, to what you were saying, Tyler, uh, you know, the word on the street, you know, obviously is that, uh, the Neil character is essentially the Christopher Nolan avatar, which might be might, might answer the question of like why his character is a bit more developed than the others. Because if it's true that Nolan essentially sees himself in that Robert Pattinson role, um, there might have been like a lot more 
direction there in terms of making sure that this character, Neil, conducts himself in a way that Nolan is very familiar with if he sees himself in that character. Right. He knows how to direct it more. Another interesting detail I'd heard was that uh, uh, Pattinson had modeled his accent off of Christopher Hitchens, which was just like kind of interesting. He likes to apparently changes his English accent for like every film he's in. He doesn't like to go with his own for whatever reason, but he had been watching all this Christopher Hitchens to pull, pull that accent away, which I don't know. Kind of neat. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to start rating him higher now. I didn't rate him at all before. Um, there's one thing I had I wanted to say a moment ago, just in terms of like the breadcrumbs being dropped and how much you're going to understand a, a Nolan film. And I feel like w- one of the example mistakes of that, I think he thought he was giving us more clues than he was is, you know, at the beginning when they set up this idea of like, okay, tenets, a, a gesture and a word. Um, so people, you know, kind of cross their hands and uh, bring their fingers together and they say the word tenant in a sentence in some way. That is not actually as as the, that gesture people are doing all the time. And I noticed it when he was first talking to the arms dealer in India um, and they show each other j- the gesture and they both say tenants are like, oh, she's in on it. Then in the next shot, he's sitting in the chair and they're talking and he has his, his fingers crossed in that exact same gesture, just because that's how people sit all the time. Like mm-hmm. it is such a normal thing to do that it actually I didn't see all the times that people did it on screen because people stand like that constantly like that's one of the default ways to relax your hands so um yeah that was sort of one of those flaws where i feel like he that was a breadcrumb he wanted us to see that and it was more subtle than i think he realized it was how do oh i got you know i i I was just wondering if we were going to talk about the score more because i i was so hyped for that score like and every time i hear it what you were saying earlier olaf about like the uh a lot of the compositions being, you know, uh, put in reverse. There's actually like a, a musical term for that. I think uh, the uh, composer Ludwig, uh, Ludwig <laughs> Carnson, trying to get that right, obviously like made those compositions with that in mind that there were mm-hmm. uh, notes that could be played forward and backwards. But what I also realized upon rewatching probably like the third or fourth time, like the first time we see the Freeport in the score, I don't know if the notes are being played in reverse, but it sounds like the notes are being played in reverse. And it's almost sort of like uh, uh, an audio cue to let us know that like an inversion is about to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious to like rewatch it yet another time and see if like on all of the other like points of inversions if the soundtrack does the same thing but the last time i watched it it was one of those ones that like really just spiked in my ear i was like oh wait what happened and i had to like rewind it to listen to it again and it's just like a little like synth like a little synth chord that plays one or two synth chords yeah but it does that and uh and that was just on the tour so they weren't even doing the inversion at that point but it was almost mm-hmm. like like what we're about to see or what we're watching right now is very important. Almost like uh, they're telling us to like really pay attention, like or buckle in, like it was going to be good. I'm just waiting for someone to like tell us, like, have you watched the film backwards? And like just like all of a sudden, there's like a well. whole new, yeah, like there's a whole new movie in there. And you're just like, yeah, you're like what? So, but I don't think that's the case. But that would it be reminds me of the next song. Reminds me of the song Spinning Plates by Radiohead, where uh, in high school, I remember this was harder to do at the time because software sucked, but I 
copied it and put made a version of the track where one channel was playing backwards and the other was playing forwards because there's clearly some backwards i was like something's playing backwards in here and that completely works as a palindrome song as well it play it just like syncs up backwards and forwards everything is happening to crescendo in the middle and then like leads back off and like it's fully in harmony with itself uh, in both directions that is so cool. and i'm sure there's a lot of there's a lot of that going on in the soundtrack too i bet um i'll also be honest i okay this is just confession time so the word tenet i actually had always thought like it's not a word i write i had thought it was the same as the word tenant like i knew there was two meanings i knew the difference between those meanings but not having ever written it down in my life i didn't know that tenant was a word so when the title of the film came out i was like is he just making shit up right now (laughs) is this is this a thing um anyway i just want to reveal my own ignorance there no, oh, me too. I, I fell in the same trap. I had to like think about that. I guess, oh, oh, wait, it's the other word. It's not even the same. Okay, I got it. Yeah. Um, the film, I believe, flips right at the uh, right after the, the highway chase when they go yeah. into that warehouse. But I, I believe that's also like the exact like halfway point of the film. So I think what you're saying about like spinning plates um the film is supposed to work the same way because from that point until the end of the film, the plot is essentially just working its way back to the beginning of the film. Yeah, it is. All right. So in the end, did this movie work for you guys? Like, uh, I don't want to pull out a numerical system, but like, was this any good? (laughs) Yeah, I enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I, I, I look forward to watching it more and more. I will admit there were certain things that didn't just feel less special but they lost a lot of their luster on the second watch but then there was more that i started to kind of put together logically so i enjoyed it in a different way the next time i watched it versus when i first watched it when it's just kind of a barrage and you're trying to piece things together because when you know what's coming you you can know when to pay more attention or where to catch things that may have been confusing before that you just took for granted and I'm, i'm curious to see what my next watch kind of reveals about it i'm curious to know where this ranks for you guys currently amongst uh other nolan films because i know tyler you've been referencing uh, interstellar a few times like is that like top of the charts for you yeah or for you me, said memento you actually said no no i think interstellar is his best work so far i mean i just i was so surprised that everybody didn't agree with me like when i saw interstellar in theaters i was like this is, this is obviously the best like everybody's gonna agree everybody's gonna see this and they're gonna come home and be losing their mind like I am. And I was really surprised that like a lot of people didn't like it It was very strange to me. Whereas with this movie, I get it. Um, I was thinking like, I'd probably put it somewhere in the middle. I'd put it over Dunkirk. I'd put it, um, I don't know. I'd probably put the prestige ahead of it. uh, Insomnia. I'd put it over that. But Memento. Insomnia is clearly his worst. So I mean, I'd put Memento. I'd put Memento above it. So maybe this starts to fall towards the bottom then. But I just really like his movies too. I mean, oh no, but also Dark Knight Rises would be below it for sure. Batman Begins, I'd put above it. So I don't have a specific ranking here, but it's like it's kind of towards the bottom. Uh, but I mean, I think, so I think Memento is like the more successful version of this, which is like it's an, such an early film of his that's kind of amazing. He's trying to do a lot of the same things, but I think it succeeded because it was more narrow in its in its scope and it's your ability to follow what's going on like it was trying to do less so it succeeded more 
I definitely think it's in the in the tops for me, but overall, I find it very hard to rate or categorize my favorite Nolan films simply because when I'm watching them, those are my favorite. I, and it's it's quite disparate. Like I don't kind of like some, like I either really like them or I just like I doubt I'll ever watch them again. Like I don't think I'll ever watch The Dark Knight Rises again unless no. <laughs> I don't know. I just it just did not connect with me in any way. Um but when I'm watching Inception, I love it. Interstellar, Dunkirk. I'd probably have to say Dunkirk is one of the few that I can rewatch the most and really just get the sense of awe out of it. And I wonder if it's because I'm not there to connect with characters. I'm just there to kind of take it in. And that I, I, I enjoy being able to just kind of, you can it's almost like feel the cold of that beach. Right. Yeah. So I don't really know, but uh, yeah, it's hard for me to say, cause there's times when I'm like, man, interstellar is just insane. And then there's, you know, you're watching Dunkirk and go, Holy crap. And so it's, they're all incredible feats. And if you haven't, I highly suggest watching the Dunkirk making of on the Blu-ray. I haven't. Because right. it's unbelievable the feat of filmmaking. Like when you, you get past the two-hour spectacle that you're sitting in front of and then just watch the logistics of bringing this together and someone as you know high a caliber as Nolan still problem solving and going, okay, how do we do this? Like in terms of getting spitfires and how many running spitfires there are on the planet and how many you're trying and what you're trying to do to them. And you want to bolt a camera onto it. And you know, all these different challenges that you take for granted when you're like, ah, I didn't like it or I did like it. So, and that again speaks to the filmmaker in me just being in sheer awe of how these films are made. And then, you know, interstellar breaking science in making a film, like how insane is that, that the two in tandem, make a discovery, which would be insane to be, you know, any part of. So it's hard to pick a favorite. What about you, Sambrush? I mean, the camera is my life. So I always start with the picture and just sort of work my way from there. It's like the, the picture and then the sound and then the characters. It's kind of like reverse, I guess. There are some intangible reasons why, like, uh, uh, like I love this film so much. I mean, the... And not to sound like political or anything, but like just like the black representation here, just like J.D. Washington is just like the epitome of like, like black excellence for me. Like he's such a good actor. He's so believable as, you know, this person who just has zero fear and can just kick ass. Everyone looks amazing. Um, the tailoring in this film is amazing. The jokes about mm. the tailoring in this film are hilarious. Um, uh, yeah. it knows, ex- it, it knows exactly from like a visual, uh, an aesthetic point of view, it knows exactly what it wants to be. Even if there are issues maybe with some of the character development. Um, I also really loved, uh, Interstellar. Um, I really liked the prestige as well. Um, but you know, I, I've seen I've seen Tenet four times now. I think yeah, four. Um, nice. And wow, every you're way time, ahead of me. <laughs> every, <laughs> but every every time I watch, I'm not I'm not watching it because I I, I feel like the the film is irreproachable. Um, I watch it because I just really like the protagonist. Um, I really like his beats. I really like the 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 pacing and the flow of everything. I think that. You know, sorry to, uh, uh, oh my gosh, 
who didn't score the film? Who's who scores all of his films? Hans Zimmer. Um, uh, Hans Zimmer. Yes, yeah, Zimmer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pour one out for Zimmer. I think that Ludwig did a fantastic job. I love like his stuff on The Mandalorian, obviously, but he's amazing. He's going to win the Oscar for this like, score. He's yeah, going it's to. so good. I don't. I haven't heard a score this you know this last year that holds a candle to the intensity it brings to the screen. And I remember when they said Zimmer wasn't doing it because he was doing Dune, and I thought, oh man, who's gonna who's going to follow that torch? Because like he does some pretty incredible stuff with uh, Nolan. So it's uh, it's great to hear. Also, character we didn't even reference in all this, but the um, the dude from yesterday, uh, Himesh Patel. Oh, he's so good! Awesome. I wanted him like, on more. Yeah, I didn't so like. I didn't good. watch. I didn't. I didn't watch the Beatles movie, and I was like, I don't know. He's just some guy I'm not really aware of. But then, like when he showed up, and was like, this is the cool. This guy's the coolest. Like he just has such a he good like energy awesome. to him. It was just like well cast. I do. I do think the whole yeah. to me the whole cast like worked. It was everybody, and it was so solid. Um. Mm-hmm. I think, and to I speak think to overall, sorry, like, just to kind of make one comment, just to um, Washington's badassery, the scene where he whoops the shit out of everyone in that kitchen, oh, I will grater. remember. Oh, I'm still like, feeling that, just, like he just tears them a new one, and that scene couldn't have established more instantly. Like, all right, I'm, I believe you can do anything now, so let's go. And he believed it. Like he tells her, she's like, "Oh, you're not going to hear from me." Basically, implying like they're they're going to kill you, even though like I'm telling you they're not. And he's just yeah. like, "No, they're not. I'll be fine." Yeah, he's like, you'll like, hear from See you later. What, what do you want for lunch? <laughs> it's it's so cool. It's so cool. Yeah. Uh, so I, my like overall takeaway of this movie is, yeah, when you say looking at the image first, like this is such a good looking movie. It's really, really mm-hmm. exceptionally beautiful. I, I, the opening sequence, especially, I, I want to watch over and over. Like, there's something about the way they captured the energy and like the, the the motion of things is just wonderful. Like the momentum of how this movie moves feels really great. The towards the end, I mean, I think there's like some there are some fundamental problems. Um, that whole ending battle sequence just. I, I literally had no idea what was going on. I, like just visually looking at it, I was like, "Where are the bad guys? Who who are they shooting at?" I like I couldn't see them on screen. They'd kind of pop up from like you know somebody'd shoot a rocket launcher out a window, and like I'd see one or two guys in white jackets here and there. But overall, I was like, the geography of this whole thing makes no sense to me. I don't. I didn't really understand. I think I missed somehow that they were even in Siberia. That it was the town that uh Sator came from like there was a lot I was not aware of and even if I had understood the backstory stuff what was right in front of me I still was not following clearly at all and maybe it's all my fault but I've never I haven't had that with any other Nolan films so like there's there's all this beautiful stuff I like that he's trying to do really insane things like anybody that walked away from this movie and says that it's awful which I saw a lot of like people just think it's bad like I said before, like they're just watching movies differently than me. Like, what are you looking for in a movie? Do you not want experimentation or ambition? Like we should encourage directors to try something new. Like, I love that this is not part of a franchise that somebody tried to do something creative and it didn't succeed in every single way, but like, I don't care. It's still pretty amazing in in so many ways. So, um, yeah, uh, I don't know. That's it. I I thought it was, I thought it was good. Not perfect. 
The intern's in the Transformers for sure, but it's fine. It's fine. It's like 20 <laughs> minutes of the movie. It's fine. Well, thanks for uh, joining me in uh, trying to solve Tenet for, with me, guys. I, I, I appreciate it. And there's going to be links to find you online in the description. So if anyone wants to check out your work, it is all amazing. And we'll talk to you next time.